0: Welcome fellow traveler, you are now listening to the Tent Theology podcast. Each week we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination.
1: Welcome to Tent Theology, the podcast for the renewing of the social and political imagination for followers of the way of Jesus. I'm Stephen Backhouse, a political theologian who is primarily interested in nationalism, patriotism, and Christianity. And I started this podcast as a way to offer to people an alternative to the noisy, poisonous tribalism of left versus right, red versus blue, and all the other partisan politics that we see around us. The Christian imagination when it comes to politics has so much more to offer than simply voting for the red team so the blue team doesn't win. We've got the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, the Fruits of the Spirit, these things are public, social, and political in their outlook. And so Tenth Theology is a way to bring this to the fore and to examine and explore other ways that we could imagine what we're doing in this world, what sort of power we have, what we do with our power, and how do we relate to people around us who don't share the same vision so, this is what Tent Theology is all about. These podcast resources are free, but they do take time, effort, and money to produce. If you've appreciated the work of Tent Theology, please consider becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com forward slash tent theology, you'll find all the details you need and the different ways you can give at levels to suit any budget. Your support. Is what helps keep this project sustainable and allows us to produce Tenth Theology for more people going forward into the future. We cannot do it without you, and in fact you are the reason we're doing this at all. So welcome fellow traveler to Tenth Theology. I'm happy today to invite Brad Jurzak and Paul Young to the program. Brad Jurzak. Is a theologian and friend to tent who's appeared on this program before he's a reader in the orthodox church and he's the author of a number of excellent books including my personal favorite a more christ-like god as well as the book in and a more christ-like way paul young is the author of lies we believe about god and the novels eve and crossroads but i think it's fair to say he is most well known for his novel The Shack, which became a runaway bestseller a few years ago and has sparked a lot of conversations in churches, pubs, buses and homes ever since. Brad and Paul are friends and they have jointly co-written a novel called The Pastor, which is out now. I sat down to talk with Paul and Brad about this book about calling yourself a Christian, about how to argue well with friends and neighbors, and what to do with criticism when it shows up in your face. I and my co-host Sean McCoy really enjoyed this conversation, and we're sure you will too. Uh, there's, there's the man. It worked. So that's how that works. <laughs> what a relief, this is good. Yeah, it's great. I'm Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Sean is my co-host of my podcast and he's yeah I can see your names oh very good I couldn't tell brilliant
2: Stephen has written just like one of the book best books ever about Kierkegaard he's a Kierkegaard oh my goodness I love
3: Kierkegaard yeah well yeah big fan I've got a bunch of his stuff here yeah there's
2: even a little there's even a little video that Stephen did what is it about 15 minutes on Kierkegaard that it's just so good
1: was that the one my publishers had me to do for zombie? Yeah, yeah. It, it like it's remarkable what you packed in. <laughs> but
3: Paul Paul Young is no send me the link for that. I'd love to hear it.
2: All right. We'll gotta find that. Paul's no um stranger to
1: provocations.
3: I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> or to depression.
1: Yeah. Well, as, yeah we're getting into it I might as, be asking as some Kierkegaard would know very well there's, about some pa- there's some Kierkegaard pastor crossovers I think so I'd be interested to we'll talk about angst and depra- despair and stuff yeah
3: like we'll end <laughs> up suicidal by the end of the show
1: all, all the fun stuff
3: <laughs> hopefully we could take a leap of faith
1: in the no, midst of it exactly <laughs> I'm trying to get this book ri- um, made into a movie because this biography I think could make a really good movie but i'm trying to plug it to people saying look he invented the leap of faith and he was against nationalism he come on he's awesome come on
3: <laughs> anyway he was inc- he's incredible
1: so there wasn't uh, we'll get to it in the interview but so there wasn't a kierkegaardian overt reference to in the pastor then you weren't thinking of that we possibly were
3: possibly because <laughs> because kierkegaard was a huge influence in me along with jacques lalou oh, yeah, awesome yeah so so those two had a big formative influence on me. At, at what point does something that somebody does become your own and and at what point is it still influence, you know,
0: so.
1: Yeah, I, I do a lot of Kierkegaard stuff. I don't drop his name all the time, but everything I'm doing has been. You, you ooze Kierkegaard. What what did you see in the pastor that triggered your uh, Kierkegaard's spider senses? Well, I mean, essentially we can talk about it on 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 air but he's essentially he has given us the the language of the inner life that you guys are just drawing from absolutely i mean you don't even we're not even necessarily quoting him he's like he invented the scaffolding which we now all use so yeah yeah, yeah. and the idea of being trapped in your own mind or your anxiety yeah leading to sin and fear being a motivator for a lot of things i don't know fear of your own existence you know yeah he's having
3: an existential he had existential crises in ways that i i couldn't access (laughs) (laughs) he he was an expert in existential crises
1: he invented it he literally invented he's literally (laughs) the father of existentialism (laughs) Uh, anyway well thank you for joining us uh i'm just recording now i will I'll probably do the intro where I prologue. rattle off everybody's prologue, but I'll do that. I'll record that separately. In the past, I've been recording these things where I, I have the guest in front of me while I rattle off their credentials. And then there's this awkward pause <laughs> where well, and they're expected to speak and I've just built them up. So maybe we'll try a different way this time. So so where but, are you? Well, so Paul, is it Paul or William? What Paul. do you like to be called? Paul, I am currently in West Sussex in uh, the South of England, Yep. near Brighton. But you and I share some... I'm from Alberta. I'm an Alberta boy. Oh, nice. Yeah. I grew up in Three Hills, Alberta. Oh, know it and quite well. I think well. we have some mutual friends, Paul. I think we do. and Connie Mitchell, well, as was, yes. yes. We had mutual friends.
3: Yeah, God. that's amazing. Well, Scott was a lifesaver for me. Really? Oh, my really? gosh. That's a, that's a whole story by itself. I, I pulled him out of the Yellow Pages. You just found him randomly. I, wow. I was at a huge crisis and the only thing that I knew what to do was to pull the yellow pages off the shelf and look under counselors and start with the A's and I got to Agape Youth and Family Services Okay. and I called him up and Byron Keeler did the intake for me and he says, I think I got the guy for you. Now, this is, I'd never heard of these people in a got city it. of a million people. I had no clue who they were. And I ended up sitting in front of Scott and he became my therapist and then my friend. And wow. and get this. So so Scott had decided to go into this air arena because of his own experience of abuse, right? Okay. And he became quite well known. He was, you know, he was a student body president at at Three Hills and yeah. and yeah. Uh, PBI, Prairie Bible Institute. And so he started becoming the go-to guy for a lot of a lot of churches that were experiencing abuse within their congregations. And my intense time with him was nine months long. Okay. Uh, which he said was going to be a year and a half. And then he, he says, you're done at nine months, you know, and I'm going like, you only, you said a year and a half. He goes, Paul, you know, it's probably a violation, but we talk about you among the therapists here, you know, and then our therapeutic community,
1: probably a violation. because,
3: <laughs> because, because we have never seen anybody work this hard and stick with okay. it okay and and uh so he said let me tell you something and he tells me about his own history and stuff and and we'd be he violated the you know the stay at a distance therapeutic model okay you know stay objective and i mean he he really became i became a relationship and he says uh so there was this one church and he names the place in southern bc and he says um they had an elder who was a, a pedophile who was abusing the little boys in the church and he asked me to come in and he starts talking. He goes like, so any of this sound familiar to you? Wow. And the pedophile was my uncle on my mom's religious side. Wow. And, uh, and so he's, he had known that since right at the beginning when we did genograms and traced our family sides, you know, father's okay. side, mother side. Yeah. Yeah. And he had connected the dots back then. And it was just like, so I, out of the yellow pages in a, in a state of absolute desperation, yeah. I end up with Scott Mitchell, whose life was already entangled with mine. You know, I had no idea he was from Canada and yeah. all the rest of it. Wow. So, you know, and then uh, when the tragedy occurred, you know, yeah. I was right in the middle of that. Yeah. And his his family his family had no idea who I was because he kept that separated, and I didn't okay. know who they were. And After his son accidentally shot and killed him and that was 2004, September 2004, 2005 I write the shack, okay. 2007 it starts just doing its thing in the world and and I get I'm getting 50 to 100 emails a day by the end of 2007 and the last I think the last one in 2007 pops in and it says you you don't know me but I really felt impressed that I needed to tell you how much your story has landed in the middle of my great sadness, our family's great sadness, because you see in September, 2004, our oldest son shot and killed the father. He loved, Scott Mitchell. Hmm. And she had no idea. I emailed her back and said, I need to talk to you. Can I have your phone number? So she said, she sent it back and I called her and I said, you know, you don't understand." Uh, and she said, you know, when you asked for my phone number, I turned to my brother-in-law who was standing next to me. And I said, I wonder if Paul is one of Scott's boys. Right. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'm one of Scott's boys. And that started me. I was there right before uh, she died, Connie died. And then Arliss and I became friends. And I I wrote a piece for Arliss's husband when he passed. Okay. And um, so, yeah, very entwined
1: very entwined. And, Paul, I have to say, we're recording right now.
3: That's okay. You can use any of it.
1: Scott and Connie's daughter is listening to this because she's a fan of Tenth Theology.
3: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yes. Isn't that yeah, funny?
3: well, she's a great human being, too.
1: Yeah, I, I grew up with those kids, so I grew up with all of them. You know? That's
3: amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then then everybody went their separate ways and they moved to the States. But, you know, that was, they're a huge part of my childhood memories. Yeah. And you went to the promised land. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think Three Hills has ever been the promised land. (laughs) No, I'm talking
3: about London. (laughs) Oh, yes.
1: Yes. The eternal summer of England. Exactly.
3: exactly.
1: (laughs) That and Scotland, you know. Oh, this is great. Now we've started, actually, we kind of started talking about where we're from. So, what we do on this podcast so first of all brad knows what i do and he's and he's been part of this for a while so i'm just going to briefly introduce what we're doing but we're all about political and social imagination here so this is what i'm doing is i'm a political theologian who's trying to renew the christian social and political imagination no wonder you're hiding in the uk yeah i have to i have to stay here (laughs) because otherwise i get sniped at you know and (laughs) I, and one of the big asks that I ask my guests is essentially, you know, tell us about your political imagination. Mm. And I don't mean tell us who you vote for every four years, but you know, I'm I'm really interested in, in actually in both of you, but Paul, can we start like what political imagination were you born into?
3: I'm a missionary kid. I'm, so I'm a third culture kid. So I have no political imagination. I mean, okay. uh, I mean there is a real sense in which third culture kids are global nomads we we don't understand politics you know we don't understand the division between people based on some external criteria so m- my political imagination was framed by people like Jacques Lel and so it's much more christocentric it's much more centered in the person of jesus than it is in terms of any affiliation with the politics of humanity that has to me which is a, an expression largely of fear and guilt and, and shame and victimization and power. And so one of, the, one of the great events for me was when I was about 18 years old, I ran into Malcolm Smith's series on the book of revelation and I'd grown up very dispensational and the the political imagination that I grew up in was you know late great planet or seven years tribulation ending up in the thousand year millennium then which we each would become a little sheriff of whatever yeah. Nottingham we wanted to be and then and then dude and, I
1: was taught that in school uh, I went to I was taught that in school I had yep. to take S so that.
3: so was I and <laughs> in Bible school and and then it was yeah. the seminary position too and so yeah. But it was like, and that didn't work either. You know, here Jesus is in charge for a thousand years and it didn't work. It's a very weak Jesus. He's very weak. Oh my so gosh. he's You know, he's, it's like he, he ended up in charge of a bureaucracy and just like, okay, I'll give it a thousand years, but if it doesn't work, I'm out of here, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, the political e- imagination was not very nuanced at all. It was no. very self-promoting and self-protecting. So it's an expression of shame at the core of it and a need for power. So when I when I started understanding the book of Revelation, not inside of a dispensational theology, the lights went on for me on so many, so many different levels. And you hit chapter 12, 13, and 14, and you end up with the the Trinity that humanity have created in instead of yep. a relational one. Right. So you've yep. got politics as a as a as a conglomeration of beasts who are trying to kill each other. You've got uh, religion that looks like a little lamb but has the voice of a dragon and no blood on it, you know, and then you've got economics as a harlot who rides the back of the politics of the of the world and, as, and the religious community who lauds and adores the political structures of the world. It's
1: a good thing that's not relevant today, isn't it?
3: <laughs> no you wouldn't you know after chapter four we were all raptured anyway so who who the hell cares you know yeah exactly yeah and, uh, i
1: can't think of a single christian culture for whom that might apply yeah exactly <laughs> did you find when uh, when you discovered Elul, like did you discover jacques Elul as did he feel refreshing and a
3: salvation to you or was he a challenge was he offensive to you like no he by the time i ran into elul which is in my teens late teens I was so ready for other voices. Right. You'd come to the end. Right. And, and it didn't take me long. You know, I've got enough trauma and damage in my history where platitudes just aren't going to work for very long. So he was a breath of fresh air. And I would describe him to people as reading Alul is like walking through wet concrete but finding diamonds everywhere. I mean, <laughs> he's really a slog in, a, in in many respects. I'm a Kierkegaardian. Ellul is... Is piece of cake for, for, for a Kierkegaardian, no doubt. And we were talking yeah. about how so much of my frame of reference was formed between Kierkegaard, Alul, I'd say a lot of C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers and yeah and yeah. Um, that whole community. And then you know I I had different people who were constantly slipping me little books, you know, mystics and yeah you know Brother Lawrence and. All of these things were sort of also little breaths of fresh air between the, the gasps of academia. So my my view of politics as it exists, it, it's a placeholder, like the law. The law was intended to be a placeholder yeah. and it was intended to keep us from absolutely obliterating ourselves and each other, right? So the law comes in to give us give us a little glimpse of where we're headed, but it isn't, the glimpse is not the end game, right? So, yeah, it's on tablets of stone for a reason because it's not the end game. The end game is that it's going to be written on human hearts. Yeah. Well, I I see politics like that too. And that's, I think, why Paul and others talk about the submission that we make in a world in which the political beasts are real and they exist inside of this, of the imagination that we've created, false imagination. And but they're a placeholder for a living, authentic reign of Jesus, which is as a servant from the inside out, and and not power centered. So we're in it, but we're just not of it. You know, that's that would be my fundamental bottom line about politics, just like religious institutions or the economics of the world. You know, we're in it, we're just not of it. So we can we can be the wild card. Right. We can be the ace in the hole. You know, we can be the one who has an ability to speak from outside. And then where is it all heading? To me, it's this relational reality that is, is slowly consuming the darkness of our false imagination, right? Uh, Of our damaged perspective and the illusions that we have attached ourselves to, right? So slowly. And I think until it covers the whole earth, until it covers the cosmos, so, that's you know, for not having a political imagination, I suppose I do have one. For
1: a guy who said I don't have one, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a political imagination shaped by Tolkien and Lewis and Kierkegaard and Ilul, That's that's pretty good. You're yeah. going, Brad. What about you? Where did you, where did you, what were you born into, and and how did you move into yeah. out of that? Well, I was born into a family of of uh what were the
2: old Defen Baker conservatives in, okay, wow. in Canada. Yep. And uh, of course my my grandfather would yell at the television at Trudeau the senior and call him a communist. Where <laughs> <laughs> um, I've come out, I a couple angles on that. So first of all first of all, um I want to define political et- of in my imagination as public faith as over against partisan politics so for and what that means is when you live the sermon on the mount in a public way and you have a word of the lord to the community not just Ooh. to individuals uh-huh. you're going to be called political but you can do so in a way that transcends partisan politics and a very good example of this is i was sent on a absurd observ- observation trip to haiti Uh, By the Mennonite Central Committee because they knew I was an up-and-coming evangelical and they were worried that I'd use my voice in the Mennonite Church Sort of to marginalize the work they were doing. They didn't realize I was all in already, right? I'm like, hey, I'll go (laughs) If if I could take Eden with me. And so we went together and we and, and we We did see why Evangelicals were accusing MCC of being political, and it's because we ended up in front of, of a military man who had arrested and beaten our MCC host, which, who was a youth worker. And his great crime is that he had the ability to gather people. Hmm. And he was gathering his youth group to do things like sweep the market and in an, in a state where... They had had an illegal coup. I guess all coups are illegal, and the the death squads are out. And they're you know this guy was a threat. So and they told us they tied him up, they beat him. And they told us they were going to kill him that night. We we heard if we offered them about a two hundred dollar bribe, we might get him free. And they said no, we don't want your bribe. We're going to get drunk and kill him tonight. And so here I am with our host Ron Blunchley. And he's standing face to face with these soldiers with their weapons mm. and uh, we're unarmed. I'm I'm crossing my legs, trying not to shit myself. And uh, Ron is Ron is saying, you will stand before Jesus Christ one day and you are going to give an account for what you two do. I mean, he was and he was it was a public faith. And I realized in that moment, I started praying Isaiah 58 that the true justice God wants looks like freeing captives untying the cords of the yoke. I'm like, Oh, we've spiritualized that to death. Yeah, I have, I I only have two options here. Stay and take the risk of standing with this guy or leave and let him be killed. That choice made me political. Yeah, that's what MCC was being critiqued for. And I'm like, in that context, you just don't have a choice. So that's, that's what I mean by um, how how public faith Flowing out of Isaiah's vision of the Messiah and his people, flowing out of the Sermon on the Mount as a way of being in this world, that's that's not partisan, but it is very political in in that public faith sense. Uh, second, I do I believe that um, in you know in Britain before America was even established, there was a kind of conservatism. We would now call it the red Tories and there's almost none that exist anymore or they've been. It's, But the idea was this, you are conserving the ancient virtues and you are applying those ancient virtues to social reform for the common good. So the highest moral value is love thy neighbor as thyself. With the establishment of the American empire, ultimately, the highest moral value becomes personal rights and freedoms, whether you're on the right or the left, the whole spectrum, the whole spectrum ha- holds as the highest moral value, my will be done. I, I think it's freedom under the euphemism of self-will. Mm-hmm. So that's just my a political opinion I have about how it's not really fair then to call anybody on the spectrum a conservative, if they're not conserving the common good right. of love thy neighbor. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, out of that, I've just watched how this terrible polarizing happens on that spectrum, and I've come to see the left-right spectrum as a matrix, as as the world system of us them. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem: How do you transcend the us them, left right, conservative progressive, all those, all the polarizing? How do you transcend that and still be engaged in public faith? Well, here's the fact: You will be accused some days of being a liberal and some days of being a conservative, because people will identify you on the spectrum by what you're engaging in. And so mm. if I put up a defense for the right of Down syndrome children to be born and that they should not all be eradicated in the womb, if I call that a genocide, well, now I sound like a sound like a Republican. I'm like, I'm not a Republican. I just... Care about Down syndrome children because I yeah. I have so many friends that are. If I say, you know what, we're called to welcome the immigrant and the and and the refugee under Christ's command to to welcome the stranger, then I then I'm accused of being a Democrat. It's like I'm not a Democrat. I just I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and I believe in the criteria of Matthew twenty five. So so that's the hard part, right? Because the moment you if you transcend the spectrum, you but you engage on any issue you appear to be in bed with anyone from the marxists to the tea party and that's just how it goes i guess blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted and and men say all sorts of awful things about you falsely for my sake but it's got to be for his sake then so i want my public faith to be an engagement with following jesus even if it makes me look bad and i get slapped with labels and then on the, uh, and and then part of the danger of that is It's not just the opposition that will slap you with the label. It's once you're labeled, the other people with the same level will stab you in the back when they see you go off script. it's like, I'm not on your script. I'm on Jesus script. It's like, no, you got to be on my script because you believed in this thing that I believed in. And so it's a, it's a big mess, but maybe the simplest thing is to say, okay, well, I'm going to follow Jesus in his call to love my neighbor as myself. And I'll do that publicly, um, where I see fit and I'm going to get it wrong a lot. I'm going to get it wrong a lot, but Look, I, I,
1: I know it is some—it is a truism, I know. But those of us who have to ever stick our heads above the parapet in the Christian world, all the fire is coming from your own tribe, right? I mean, like the, all the uh, the real problems don't come from the people out there. They all come from people who call themselves.
3: People out there have an ability to recognize love in a way that, you know, your own people don't.
1: As someone, Paul, with a high profile... <laughs>
3: How do you do it? I st- I stay short. I'm five foot six, so you know. One is, thank God, I didn't write the shack until I'd really done the inner work. Right, right. Otherwise, I would have been at risk. But everything that mattered to me was in place before I wrote that book: identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, one of my little phrases I think I got from the Holy Spirit is other people's opinion is none of my business. You know? And and I don't I don't need platform, I don't need notoriety, all the things that those things offer, I I have in spades in terms of the reality of of relationship, not just with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, but with human beings. Right? And so the things that are important to me have changed so much because, uh, with the eradication of shame being the underlying promoter or fear, you know, then, then all of a sudden you're, you're present to care for the person who is bringing to the table what they got. And, um, and you don't take it personally. It's like, I, know i've been sitting on father forgive them they don't know what they do and i don't say anything unless i hear the father say it so he's already listening to the father saying that it's like yeah you know and sometimes that means you listen and sometimes that means you just go in for a hug and sometimes that that means that you say i'm curious to know what you think about this sometimes you take it because that's what the person's bringing and it's the person that matters more than what you know what they think about being right or any of those things which is a political thing It's in in the line of what brad was saying so beautifully
1: yeah and any time that we are acting in such a way as it has a public implication we are now political and by the way everything we do has a public implication absolutely <laughs> i mean brad have you like talking about ideas that you don't like is one thing like criticisms but have you ever had actual critics the actual human beings stand up in front of you what do you do how do you deal with the human being brad because it's easy to turn off facebook or to just ignore the email but what about the human being who's up in your
3: face i want to answer that too when he's done go on yeah that's awesome thanks
2: paul (laughs) (laughs) we'll need you um no you know uh for me there's three options every time one of them is is to be silent and let them speak and then leave and give them the last word if i don't think that anything productive can happen from this the problem is sometimes my conscience will say your silence right now is complicity right and in fact uh saying nothing Uh, Maybe enough of a message to them, but it may also drive me into passive aggressive resentment towards them. (laughs) So I need to be careful of that. The other side of that is I can debate them. If there's enough of a relationship that we can hold difference, then we can actually begin to collaborate towards truth and have a, a rigorous debate because we're mature enough to be able to hold that difference and hold the tension. And that'd be actually an ideal. And so I, I love having close friends who are across the aisle from me on a variety of things. And that would be ideal when there's goodwill.
1: You can draw from the goodwill. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But when you say up in my face, that often will will that will have to lead me to the third option, and that is expressing a boundary and just saying I I don't think that you're hearing me. I don't think you you can hear me or want to hear me right now. And frankly, probably I don't either. So to avoid escalation, let's agree to disagree and close off the conversation at that point. And so, in other words, I I, I may need to state the boundary if I just don't see a way forward in that moment, and then. By by, if they're willing to hold the boundary, we've actually established one more step of trust. Right, and, and uh, a few steps down the road, we may be able to have those those harder conversations. So what did I do? I said silence on the one hand, debate on the other hand, boundaries in the middle. But really, the, I do favor the open debate of ideas with people of good faith, and that I I expect them to stra- not straw man me, but to to steel man me. Mm -hmm. And likewise, so for example, just last night, I had a a guy get into it with me, uh, pushing libertarianism in Alberta, and how this affects the COVID crisis. And, and he he was so amiable, that I was able to say, you know, we're, I think we're going to end up disagreeing on this, but could you suggest a good primer so that I never misrepresent your position? And he was happy to do that and he invited me to a facebook group so i can recruit my friends which i won't you know so but that was a, that was nice because then i was able to hear him put his best case forward in a few minutes for something that i've historically not been drawn to but now i'm like hey i know a guy i know a nice guy yeah. that i can use as a reference for this
3: I have, I have a friend when he's going into a difficult situation he'll he'll just say can i tell you something in this conversation, wherever it goes, I don't want anything that is actually precious to you to be less precious to you by the end of this conversation. Okay. Right. And yeah. so there's this, and and I, I'm in agreement with all that Brad is saying, and I think he would be in agreement with this is that it's one thing to talk about those situations. It's another, that when you're in them to be aware of the presence of the Holy spirit and the guidance that comes from that. And Mm -hmm. and because the creativity involved in, in those moments can go in a, in directions that you can't even begin to imagine. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so generally speaking, those three things are, are, are true. Um, uh, It's also true that a lot of times people won't come face to face with you. They'll, because that's the anonymity and, of uh, social media and everything else. And, and it's it's a self-protective mechanism. And the good side of that is it's giving voice to many who have been voiceless. The dark side of that is that the voice that it gives them is the one that allows, uh, which is also good, it exposes um, the brokenness of their own heart, right? And And we've learned in different cultures to represent that brokenness in very powerful ways so that it doesn't appear to be brokenness. It pe- appears to be intelligence, or appears to be you know. So I have I had this uh, quite a, a well known guy on the west coast who on U- on uh, his big church at the time, and uh, he uh, he slammed the book and and when he, and he did it publicly and it went viral right mm-hmm. and and it was great because I mean he actually sold me probably more books than anybody else on the planet but but he had said in his thing you know. If you haven't read the book, don't. And then he talked talked about me being um, what did he call me? Anyway, a theological, uh, not kind word. And he, and uh, theological itself
1: is bad enough. So uh, yeah, we'll yeah, stop. yeah, yeah. You
3: know, and uh, you know, put me in the rank of the heresies and all this kind of stuff. I always find that the
1: least theological educated people are the ones who use the word heretic a lot. Oh, I
3: know. Like, the more
1: theologically educated you are, the less you talk about heresy. Oh,
3: that's true. <laughs> so. So anyway, this goes out, and and a situation arose because you know the the way that he constructed his his life was um, he was a pastor of a church and it was, he had a fascist system, right? Yeah. And fascism has no roots, and and so you know in my personal conversations with friends and things like that, when this would come up, I I just go like it's it's going to crash because it's fascist, right? It turns out I I just felt. I called him up mm-hmm. and I said, you know, this is who I am. And because when I, when I heard what he said, I knew he hadn't read the book, right? Right. It was so obvious he hadn't read the book. So I called him up and I said, Hey, would you be willing to meet with me in a public forum just to talk about the, the ways that we see things, the difference of mm-hmm. opinion and and all of that? Mm-hmm. He said, no way. And I go, yeah. okay, well then would you meet with me on your terms? You just named the terms and I would like to do that. And he goes, you'd meet with me alone in my office. And I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. He said, okay. So it was very interesting. A friend of mine who knew I was going to go visit this gentleman asked me to come that early part of the morning and sit with about 15 people who had worked for him that were just dismantled relationally. They just were in such deep pain. And then I went from there to meet with this brother. And so we spent 45 minutes together and about about 20 minutes into it, he says, all right, I got to tell you that it's it's a little disconcerting for me. Every time I try to talk theology with you, you you turn it to relationship. <laughs> What's that about? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we're not going to agree theologically. We don't even agree on the terms and the definitions, you know? Yeah. So I said, I do have a couple questions to ask you if you're open to it. He says, sure. I said, why do you hate women? Mm-hmm. And my other question is, why do people who follow you have such a reputation for being mean? Mm -hmm. You know, and those weren't, those weren't barbed questions. Those were like exposing questions. I want to understand how you deal with this. Mm -hmm. And he immediately started opening up about his childhood, growing up, his parents being alcoholics, his brothers both being in prison, on and on and on. Well, it wasn't but, what, six months later that it his system all exploded. And when it did, he was getting death threats from Christians in his congregation and all this. And we sent a back channel message to him because we had a little guest house on our property. And we said, if you and your family need a safe place to be, we just want you to know that it's available to you. So that's an example of the creativity that we have available to us in because of our relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have never been political in the sense of, you know, don't drive a political agenda and not religious either. And so it's like, wow, creativity is unbounded, you know, because creativity is often bounded by politics and religion and economics. Yeah.
2: And you 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 didn't get bogged down in a debate about Calvinism or something at that point. He said he,
3: he called me a modalist, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. going like, I know you didn't read the Shack because if you called me a modalist, there's no way. and uh, And so that's you know I didn't get I didn't get bogged down in the theological stuff because that's that's his territory of expertise, and that's where he wields a sense of authority. It's just that wow. he, he doesn't know a lot about relationship. and that and that became the bridge point.
1: Well, and that's his, as you said yourself, Paul, earlier, you know, that's the loud speaking, the loud talking is his, that's his cover up for his pain, really.
3: Which is the pastor, yeah. That's the book. Yeah, there's your segue
1: right there, isn't it? Yeah. I, I want, I'm going to talk to you about the pastor. Before this, I just remembered, Brad told me a while ago, he said, Paul, I need to ask you, are you a Christian?
3: <laughs> I said, well, tell me what one is. I'll tell you if I'm one of those. Because I don't Brilliant. mind being one of those, and I tend to be one when it's helpful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but a lot of times it's just not helpful. <laughs> exactly. You know.
1: It usually means something that we don't want to affirm. So it's usually best to just say, well, what do you mean by that? Exactly.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, I know that Paul is a deeply Trinitarian follower of Jesus, but sometimes the the, the Christian label, it's very small right now in in ways that my this is my opinion that the church is larger than christianity right if the church are those who are oriented towards divine love and and even we know so many jesus following people who who would say "I, i i don't relate to christianity as as a religious as a religion so here we are with kierkegaard again right
1: that the religion versus revelation now i noticed some kierkegaardian elements in your novel so I want to talk about the novel. The reason you're both here is that you have jointly authored a novel called The Pastor. Now, I have to, I have to say, I'm reading it right now. I'm enjoying it. Although Brad did say enjoy in heavy air quotes because it's, it's not an easy light read. It's, a, it's no. an internal psychological examination of a man who has driven himself insane in some yep. ways. I, but it's a good book. But my problem here is how do you talk about a novel on a podcast without spoiling it. So, I'm just going to get hand this I don't want to say anything that will accidentally step on any of the buttons that you've laid. So, Paul's my mentor in that. He's he's showing me the ropes. Teach me how to do this. How do I talk to authors about a novel?
3: So, the pastor is um it's a composite character made of bits and pieces of our own life, as well as bits and pieces of the lives of people we know. In fact, the characters in the book are often actual people that we know and and verbatim quotes in some of the cases. And so the pastor, uh, it represents every man in a sense, but they're such an easy target because the whole pastoral program is such an untenable thing within a religious system as far as, you know, because you're, you're asked to be relational, but you can't take the risk of being relational. You're, you're asked to be transparent, but you can't take the risk of transparency. You're, you're asked to be authentic, but that would mean disclosure and exposure. And that would violate the, the Im, the imagination of the position. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a very arduous, difficult, place to be within uh, religious systems. But this particular man, like so many of us, has buried his history and his wounds inside of his psyche. And the unexposed is the unhealed. So how how is it that in our lives, and and we watch this one particular person go through an absolute meltdown as that process of the crisis or the judgment takes place because the Greek word "krisis" is the word judgment in that sense. And that's where we get the English word. And so you have this, uh, journey through which the inner world is exposed with the intention in the love of God toward wholeness and healing. But it's, it is a brutal, beautiful, Hellish process, and for a lot of us, that's exactly what it's been. You know, religious people believe in hell; spiritual people have been there, and there are so many different uh, surprises along the way. But it's it's very authentic. It doesn't have uh, it's not propaganda. It doesn't sidestep into butterflies and and whatever. As this is an arduous, difficult journey and so you get to watch you get to and you get to see how in this life is exposure going to happen is there anybody that is irredeemable you know we we've sort of picked someone who in a sense would be irredeemable in the minds of so many people and it's like oh okay you're going to go sit back in the seat of judgment or what and it's like all right how is grace going to show up in the middle of this person's world
1: i mean it had that it has this um I mean, it's kind of like reading Dostoevsky or *Crime and Punishment* or something. I mean, you're spending a lot of time inside the greasy mind <laughs> of a really bad
3: person, and yet there is grace there, you know. I think it was Brad's son that well, somebody said to you, "It's it's kind of like a cross between *A Handmaid's Tale*, uh, Margaret Atwood, and *The Shack*. You know, you, right. you, you 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 smush those two things together, and you end up with the pastor."
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, it won't be recruiting people to the fundamentalist uh, Baptist churches anytime soon, I don't
2: think. No, I doubt it. But one of the things I'm realizing I, that we wanted to explore was our descent into hell and the reality of Christ's descent into hell. He, that he comes to find us, or perhaps he's even waiting there for us. And he unites himself to our affliction. So we wanted to face into affliction. I, I I do think that one of the the great Achilles heel of Christian faith, where we're most vulnerable, is the affliction of children. And you see that in in Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov. When he wants to really present atheism's best case yes. against Christian faith, he brings up the suffering of children. We have to look there to see if, if the blood of Christ is adequate, even for that, you know? And, and I believe from experience that it is you know the the people we've worked with who experienced uh who've experienced childhood sexual abuse like in paul's own testimony could christ even heal someone of wounds that deep or is the gospel just meant for uh suburban first world problem people right. can it face into the worst case scenarios and our belief is that it can and it's a belief we derive by sight by by seeing
1: what what god can do what love can do how, how did you two you You've put your you've both put yourselves into this novel tell us about your own friendship how did how, how does a theologian from british columbia and a novel writer from washington how, how do you meet how did you We've got 15 minutes left. Is that right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> we have as long as we want. There's lots of pieces of this story that are just beautiful. I went out and spoke at the church that Brad once pastored and Eden was now pastoring. And, Br- and Brad was gone because he comes to the UK occasionally and, and does all these other things. And and so I I didn't actually meet him. And it wasn't until a wild set of coincidences, which... To me is, you know, whimsy run amok. My one of my nicknames for the Holy Spirit. I, I, I had no rights or creative control over the Shaq movie, right? But Lionsgate invited me in, Netter Productions invited me in. They asked me to look at the script. They, Lionsgate, secular mm-hmm. studio, right? Calls me up and said, would you consider coming up to British Columbia on the first day shoot and pray a blessing over the entire cast and crew? My family is up in central BC. And so I'm up in Canada quite a bit. And so I went on the first day shoot and there's lots that happened there. But ab- about 60 days later, I get another phone call from Lionsgate and they said, hey, would you would you consider coming back? We'd love to have you come for another day. I looked at the calendar and this was like on a Monday, they were going to fly me Wednesday that week and then home Friday. So Thursday, I'd be all day on the set. And I thought, huh, it works. So I'm within 20 minutes. It's all arranged, right? Transport will come pick me up at the airport, take me in and spend the night in Chilliwack, in Southern BC. And so I'm 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 sitting there at my desk, and I'm going like, wait a minute, Brad. And we'd had some email exchanges and things like that uh, on projects that we were working on. Just uh, we'd built a relationship uh, uh, via email at that point. Brad lives in Abbotsford. I mean, that's like right next door. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he's even on the continent. So I email him, "Hey Brad, where are you? Are, you know I'm coming. I explain what I'm going to do. Emails me back. Can I pick you up from the airport?" And I'm like, "Well, let me check. I check with transport. Saves him three hours round trip. Yes, absolutely. So I email him back. Yes. Two minutes later, I get an email with a photo attached to it, and and Brad's like, "Huh? You won't believe this." While we were emailing, he says, Eden and I have been invited up by friends, Dwight and Lori, and they have a little summer cottage up at Cultus Lake. And while you and I were emailing back and forth just now, Dwight and I decided to go for a walk. And we're like two and a half blocks away into the woods. And look, and it's got a picture of Dwight and Brad and this big orange fluorescent sign that says, the shack. (laughs) one of the one of the many set locations in British Columbia was at Cultus Lake and they didn't even know it and they ran into it while this conversation's going on and they take this picture right send it to me and then and then Brad says you know in the email Dwight and Lori have been through a great sadness you know the their youngest daughter I think Adri was their youngest eh
2: yeah
3: they've had a tragic loss in the death of their daughter and about 3 years ago and in fact it was Dwight that gave Brad uh, Brad's first copy of The Shack. I mean, okay. Dwight was the one that was all over this. And Lori's a spiritual formations director. And and Brad says, you know, Dwight believes that if he could just read The Shack again, it could help him get unstuck, but he hasn't been able to make it past chapter one. Right. And he said, and Lori, Lori is just lost. And he says, I don't know if there would be any way while you're here, as if even if you could spend 10 minutes with them, I think that would be really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I said, we'll figure it out. So they fly me up Wednesday, they, you know, he picks me up. It's like, I was saying to him the other day that there are some relationships that are such kisses of grace, they require no work, you know? And this was one of them. And it was just like, we went and had lunch together, talk shop all afternoon, and then had supper with Eden. And then he, you know, dropped me off at the hotel in Chilliwack. And I said, I'll let you know. And he and Eden go back up because they're spending a week up in the cabin. So the next morning, or that late that night, I get this uh, call sheet from the studio and it says, we're going to pick you up at nine 30 and we're going to take you to the set location at Cultus Lake. And so hour after I, they picked me up, I'm walking onto the set location, two and a half blocks of where the four of them are. And that starts a whole chain of react where I just walked on and the director and his wife and the no, the director and the producer and his wife standing in a huddle. And I walk over and I say, Hey, would there be any possibility that I have four friends who are two and a half blocks from here, that they could come spend the day on the set? And they said, absolutely. That started, um, I mean, it had already started, but that that day turned out to be an absolutely choreographed day. It was like you couldn't do anything wrong. And it absolutely liberated Dwight and Lori, because I didn't even know what we were shooting and the scenes that we shot that day spoke, I mean, in unbelievable ways, spoke directly into their great sadness. And so that was the first two days that I spent with Brad. You know, what's what started off as a beautiful relationship uh, through email, just like now was incarnate. And so, you know, we've been, people have been constantly putting the two of us together on all sorts of things, which we absolutely love. And Brad, who is a theologian, who under, he's a theologian who understands that fiction is far more powerful than nonfiction most of the time. Your Dostoevsky being a prime example, yeah? And he wanted to to do something. He wanted to bridge into the fiction world, and he thought that my presence would be helpful in that. And so a lot of the genesis came from Brad, and then I came alongside, and we, we crafted it together from there.
1: What's the you know, what's the, what's the process? Are you, are you swapping chapters? Are you um, rewriting each other's work? How do you, how do you?
3: Yeah, it was, it was rewriting to some, but you know what? There's, there's a flow to not only your own work, but there's a flow to the work of other people. And, And if you're asked to come alongside, which is what I did, I could see where the flow was and I could see how it could be crafted differently. And so I rewrote bits and pieces and parts and things like that. But again, the basic genesis was coming from from Brad he he bore the lion's share of that of that process in another one it could be that i bear the lion's share and then he crafts you know from a theological point of view or whatever either way
2: that's a very generous way for paul to put it as you can <laughs> tell right and i should i think we should also do a shout out to each of, each of us have uh, an editor that we really trust implicitly right. yep. and so they came into the process and I I found that like I was never I was not resistant to Paul's input at all. But with or my editor, but with his editor, I'm like we don't know each other. It's the one person in the process that didn't have a relationship with. So I'd have to say, oh, here's why I did it this way. Yeah. And and then she she would say, uh, okay, I get that. But and like and she just brought so many helpful things but that and that's where your your ego has to let go and you're like wow this is a true collaboration
3: well when i when i wrote eve which was a very hard book to write and and i love it i absolutely love that book but when i wrote it i edited out 55,000 words right that's and it's like book. all right this yeah. is this is going to be somewhere else for something else and um as beautiful as it is it it is not part of where this child is going to end up you know it's that's just part of the journey and it really helps when your ego is not front and center
1: i don't yeah. know who needs to hear this listening to this podcast but if you are a writer and if somebody who knows what they're doing is going to edit you kill yourself and let it happen like let your ego die because i have never been edited and regretted it <laughs>
2: I've occasionally not listened
3: to my editor and did regret it. Yeah. Like (laughs) whenever I've gone through it, I've been so glad. Yeah. Iron sharpens iron if the angle's right. Okay. Mm. Okay. There uh, in uh, what was the crossroads, there was a a number of different editors involved with crossroads and uh, including my own, the, the, the woman I particularly uh, love and appreciate and and some from the publishing house and some were trying to make it more Christian and all this kind of stuff. So there is that kind of tension that you have to yes. take it a... more than one pot.
1: Yeah. Chicken uh,
3: person stirring the pot. So it's like, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, an editor is worth their weight in platinum, you know, or diamonds because <laughs> a good editor, but at the same time, it's your birthing. Right. That's your child. And 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 take take the risk of taking a stand, especially if you're dealing with uh, religious editors of one sort or another, because they, yeah. the publishing industry as a whole is doesn't have a lot of foresight. It it's it's all looking. They walk mm-hmm. backwards. Mm-hmm. Put it that way. Yeah.
2: Can we can we go this dark in a in a Christian book? It's like I'd rather go dark than it be a Christian book. <laughs> so, um, exactly. Because, and yet, because of the darkness that we we dare to take. In the, in the Christian world, I
1: think the light shines that much brighter. And we took a stand on that and yeah, yeah. we're grateful. Are you starting to get, I know it's early days out. Are you starting to get feedback? Is it finding the, the market or the, the audience that you want to find? It is. Yeah, it's good because you did take a risk, right? I mean, the, the Christian publishing industry is such a, it's a hard beast to tame <laughs> or to play with. In many ways, we wrote it for broken
2: people who need hope that they can be forgiven or that they can be healed, whatever, whatever affliction they're in. And, and that, so that's, that's our target audience. And that's who we're beginning to hear back from with really positive feedback.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, in a way, the shack, I suppose, is one of the books that broke the ice. Oh yeah. The Christian books, not playing by the Christian rules.
3: Right. (laughs) On on, on a lot of different levels. And, and, uh, and it wasn't intentional. You know, because I was I wrote it solely as a gift for my kids for Christmas and 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. So and that's part of the beauty of it. But, you know, I have a relationship with my kids. I'm not going to write some kind of pablum that that is just, um, you know, has has an inherent propaganda element to it. I think as soon as you do that, you kill the art. And so it it broke the rules simply because it didn't have an agenda and it didn't have the like a friend of mine said, he said, I read this whole thing waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, right, right. And, uh, and it didn't. <laughs> and it was like, you know, this is real life. It really hurts.
2: Yeah. Claims. And it's, it's really right. beautiful. In the case of the pastor, since you're a political theology show, that that's my PhDs in that too. I think what I'm starting to see as of the, in the last day or so is how one way to read the pastor that we had not intended was um, seeing the pastor as a metaphor for the evangelical movement in America, what's happened to it, and the dark paths it has, tr- it has trod, but also perhaps um, that there's hope for our people because this is our tribe.
1: I am laughing because I thought that you intended that. Because that's exactly I, where
3: I Didn't intend it as, on the outset, but uh, it's one of those surprises that along the way, when people, w- if you write decent fiction, It creates space so that people can hear for themselves and then they will hear things that you didn't intend, but will bless your heart.
1: I mean, what's happened, I think it, and I'm trying not to ruin this book or whatever. Well, I think what's happening in that book is that you're, you're seeing somebody take on and personalize the faceless forces into which they've been born and told. So they've, they've, been told this is how you're supposed to be and this is what you're supposed to do and this is the civilization and the theology and the whatever you're supposed to defend your identity is these things they've now owned that for themselves and they've come to the end of themselves they've they've incarnated bad ideas
0: And,
2: and so now are we bereft and it's like what if you're not
1: i don't know if you've you know uh i don't know how much powers and principalities you've ever engaged with sort of walter wink or hello (laughs) right i mean this is a little this is this is is the uh new demons powers and principalities which have grown malignant or they've become they themselves are demonic they've kind of become demonic because they're inhuman right because they are attacking the humans who are part of it and it's not human life
3: and we've created them out of our own darkness
1: exactly exactly
3: yeah they're not flying around right they're not like
1: just gas that you accidentally walk into the demon The demonic is something we partner with. We create, we perpetuate, you know, if,
3: if brokenness in the cosmos came through one man and that one man has dominion,
1: mm-hmm.
3: then these things are an expression of that dominion and, and those things actually are subordinate to the dominion of the darkness that that one man opened up the, the chasm for.
1: The winnowing of hell, which Brad... Exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, we also are joined by Sean. I'm not sure if Sean has any. Is there anything you want to ask, Sean, before we uh, bring this portion of the wonderful conversation to a close.
0: So many things. So Both gentlemen, I want to thank you for coming on the show with us. Uh, absolutely honored. Uh, Paul, I, I was baptized at 32 years old in 2006, and I was one of these naive first Christians. Ecclesiastes was the book that brought me into my faith. And so I was looking for this, the, the kind of the the darks or the the deep part of faith and where God was and all these things. And so for me in 2007, your book made all the sense in the world, and I was a naive Christian and didn't understand what what it was stirring. So it, to me, it, I wanted to share it with everybody, like here, here's the, this isn't rainbows and unicorns. This isn't all that stuff. This is the grit that we so need to like lament on and, and, and internalize and ask. So that that was, pr- and then then Brad, your book. More Christ Like God was a big part of my journey the last couple of years, uh, listening to Stephen on Nomad Podcast, where I've heard you many times before in other podcasts and stuff. So with all that, so you, so both you gentlemen have had a significant uh, just you know, influence in terms of just my thought process, all that. So I just wanna thank you for all, of, all the work you've done. So in regards to listening, what you both have been saying, I'm trying very hard to come up with something of the same significance and, and, and value from a question standpoint. And where I keep going back into is, you, you both are, are intimately aware of what it means uh, of victims of what it means to be a victim of what it means of injustice of being on the other side of that. And, uh, I want to ask a question in relation to that, but I want to preface it a little bit with a little bit of my own journey to give you kind of some perspective. So for years, I, I, I would use the title of, of the son of an alcoholic as kind of a badge, not necessarily on purpose, but being a victim does come with some power. And even now I think more than in my lifetime, victimhood has become a source of power. And, and I'm in the corporate world in oil and gas. We're seeing remnants of that with ESG, with this environmental, social, and governance initiatives now. You can't go anywhere without hearing that word. It's pushing back on the, on the powers and principalities that have been running things all the way up to the corporate level, all the way down to the most basic levels of, of humanity, in, gar, in regards to who's in power. And so there's a need to lament. There's a need to look at things systemically. We have to recognize the injustice that has happened to men, I mean, to women. To African Americans, to, to homosexuals, to all the different groups that we've, whether it's intended or not, systemically. And then there's just individual victimization around actions of an individual towards one, from one towards the other. And there, and there's, and this idea of either forgetting about it or it's not that big a deal is just, just, it just makes it that much more difficult. We need that opportunity. All that to say, where I will, and I want to start with me, where I took another step in that journey on an individual basis was when I was able to let that. The, the, that victim side of me go and let that and take that title off and get rid of it and and let it go in terms of who I am so could you speak to that a little bit from each of your own personal perspectives on what do we do because then I think about somebody like the pastor in that book I think about the Hitlers I think about the people the Pol the, the 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 evil on the other side if we could just let, if we could just get rid of them everything would be fine and what we come to find out is there's much more of a balance that being a victim, or being a bully or being bullied doesn't mean you can't be a bully being a victim doesn't mean you haven't victimized and so where is the room not only for the victim to be honored and, on, and for that experience to be honored but also to allow for a repentance of the person perpetrating that 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 act and give them the same space without giving too much to one and not enough to the other
3: so victim victim can be definitely an identity and, and once it's acquired as an identity, it's a very hard thing to let go of because then you frame all of your experience going forward inside of that, uh, definition of self. And, uh, but it's not the intention, uh, of wholeness at all. And so, yes, uh, part of the exposure is that there has to be a room for the telling, and this is why story matters so much. Uh, every human being is a story and every story matters. And uh, it's story that grants texture to relationship. And so the forgiveness is for the sake of the victim, right? Where you you let go of somebody's throat, so you don't have to carry them around and poison all your other relationships. It's for your own freedom. Reconciliation is the arduous process of rebuilding trust, and that's that's where the work takes time because it requires ownership on part of the perpetrator, which could be me as. In one se- sense, and me as the I have to deal as myself as a victim. In another sense, right? De- just depending on what the what the what the situation was. So, when you're dealing with the reconciliation, which is the rebuilding of trust, I got to own what I did. I have to tell the truth about what I did, and I have to. And, and the and the goal is not that by doing so I'm doing it for the sake of freeing somebody else. That's not the point. Mm. The point is in owning it. I need to tell the truth about it. And I need to ask, I need to exchange power and ask forgiveness, uh, whether somebody grants it or not. And then I need to change over time. And I think it's the change over time part that, I mean, people just want to get to some kind of a declaration without the change over time that allows for the building of trust and relationship. And uh, so it's in the reconciliation part of this whole dynamic where the the long-term work does, the forgiveness. That's in your power, and and because frankly, most of the people who hurt you they don't give a damn, and or they're dead, and if you're waiting for somebody else to feel bad about it, uh, so that you can be free, you may have to wait an awful long time, and um, so the forgiveness part is no. If you have if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is almost invisible, you can say to this mountain of unforgiveness or bitterness or hurt, be picked up and cast into the sea, so that you can be free right? Reconciliation. Now that's where the miraculous really happens because, uh, when reconciliation happens in relationship, that's, that's greater than raising the dead, which is only biological, you know, reconciliation is eternal and, and, and it, and it deals with the roots of the heart and actual transformation.
2: Yeah. I liked your answer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think
2: one of the, th- this is the the big question is how to how to face into the the real things that we had repressed right to say i actually there was i was actually a victim now i'm i'm not speaking as myself now here so much as for those the people that i work with who really have been deeply abused or and also those who were hurt or harmed through through me and so on the one hand i I don't want them to rush past the reality of the harm and say, "You stop playing the victim here. What am I doing there? I'm I'm asking them to push down unhealed hurt. But if they can walk through the process that Paul's just described, where there's truth telling, then we can move beyond a victim identity into a real empowerment. And maybe those somehow happen simultaneously. But I just am very aware right now of, the story we tell ourselves has a huge impact, and so if the story I won't let go of is, uh, you know, I'm a victim and forever will be a victim, that means you're an oppressor and will forever be an oppressor, and there is no pathway to redemption. And in fact, I I need to make sure there isn't one, or you'll take away my identity. So that's that's really difficult work uh, to say. To say, uh, be honest about the hurt and harm you've experienced, um, and then think about uh, uh, the, how you might be empowered. And the novel actually explores that. It ex- w- w- two of the characters are are women who represent pa- d- diverse paths forward for someone who's been harmed. And so, the other thing for me personally is that in being freed from the story i tell myself as far as uh being stuck in hurt the fruit of which was hating my enemies Uh, jim forest taught me to just start praying by name for them every day anybody i could think of from my history who who had harmed me where i'm still triggered into hatred or vengeance fantasies about them Mm -hmm. um he said he said, you, you know, just say their name and Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on them, have the mercy on them I want for me. But it, the part two of that, he said, before you do that, go through the names of those, you know, you've harmed. Well, the weird thing, and, and pray for them and their families and the impact Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on them. And heal them of the wounds that I've, I've inflicted and that I may not be able to touch, like to be part of healing. Well, I noticed that list was twice as long <laughs> as, and so by the time I got to the people I needed to pray for and who'd hurt me, um, I didn't have a leg of condemnation to stand on anymore because here I'm asking for mercy. So I, I want to extend mercy.
1: I, fa- I find it fascinating that. You can't, so I always get attacked with the idea of like, oh, well, Jesus is just for private ethics, but, you know, in the public realm, we have to put aside, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or what, you know, it's Jesus is for private stuff and politics is for public stuff. And I just find it fascinating that talking to you, the idea of like inner work and forgiveness and self-knowledge and inner healing just becomes political within half a second because now you're talking about forgiveness you know uh, a vi- if your identity is as a victim or as a bully or a perpetrator well you're instantly talking about your actions having an implication on the wider world like there is no private public distinction it does not exist. not at all it is impossible to do anything and say anything without having a public sphere to it and the, all the work that we have of forgiving your enemies and knowing yourself and knowing your identity, those are political acts just as much as they are private acts.
3: I was I was telling somebody the other day about, and they said, "What do you think about all the protest- pro- protesters?" You know, we live in just north of Portland, Oregon, and we have a son who's a Portland police officer. And I said, "You know, protesting is a good thing, you know, but rights are where human beings, you know, rights are where love goes to die." And I said, you know, I'll tell you some of the forms of protest that I that I participate in. I tell my wife the truth about things. You know, I I do the dishes and I take the garbage out and I help in any way that I can. I love well my grandchildren, and I tell the truth with my kids. Those are all protests. And and when I'm invited into uh, an a larger arena, then I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to to guide me in the ways that I protest. But I, one of the statements that Alul says that I absolutely love is, is the only true anarchy is an irrevocable commitment to nonviolence in thought, word, and deed. Right? Yep. Now, how, wow. what a protest is that?
1: She's reading that this morning. <laughs> Choosing not to wreak violence on your enemies is the bare bones, basic, first stage act of being a follower of Jesus and is the bedrock of any politics of from Absolutely. Paul. Say that quote again, Paul.
3: The only legitimate definition of anarchy is an irrevocable commitment to nonviolence in thought, word, and deed.
1: Very good. We are Christian anarchists. If you think the Holy Spirit blows where He will, whimsical. What was your phrase?
3: Whimsy. The whimsy run muck.
1: Whimsy. Run amuck. That's the Holy Spirit. That's Christian anarchy, folks. I don't know what else to tell you. I agree. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the Holy Spirit anarchy is he will, he's whimsy, run amok. He will blow where he will. And we, we're not allowed to build structures or religions or politics that have this huge long life outside of us. We're not, we're supposed to dismantle our institutions the minute they stop serving humans,
3: which is yeah.
1: <laughs> Friends, thank
3: you so much for joining us. Ah, uh, such, such a great time, Stephen. Thank you. And Sean, appreciate the question. It was very, very kind and thoughtful.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having us. It was another chance to hang out with my dear friend, Paul. Which, so we always measure these things by three letter word, fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Well, please ask you to come back. If you write, the, what's the sequel going to the pastor, the priest, and the nun? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. if i come up with a really good way to uh to do some political theology through novel right through storytelling perhaps i'll commission you to write this for me instead perfect probably no idea that can't be told better through fiction than told through academic prose (laughs) i agree yeah
3: grace to you much love enjoy the grace of today
1: thank you so much bless you both
2: to further support the show Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tentheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.